0: All right, we're going to get started. Uh, Welcome, everybody, to Cato. Uh, I'm Ben Friedman. I'm a research fellow in Defense and Homeland Security Studies here. Uh, We're here today to discuss uh, Richard Gamble's book, In Search of the City on the Hill, The Making and Unmaking of an American Myth, uh, which is here and uh, available for uh, sale outside. Uh, Richard's book traces the city on a hill metaphor in uh, American politics or American religion and then politics uh, from uh, John Winthrop, the Puritan leader, uh, to today when it it features in a lot of political rhetoric about uh, American exceptionalism. And I think we'll get to talk a bit uh, about American exceptionalism and uh, how, how that concept, or how I, I should say concepts, have evolved over time, because really we're talking about competing American exceptionalisms and uh, competing ideas of American foreign policy. Uh, and uh, we have three speakers today who will each speak for uh, 10, if I'm uh, tolerant, maybe 15 minutes uh, before we go to uh, Q&A, and and, uh, I'll just uh, introduce them in the order they'll speak. Uh, First, we have uh, Richard Gamble, uh, who has the uh, Anna Margaret Ross Alexander Chair in History and Political Science, which somewhat confusingly is in the History Department uh, at Hillsdale College. Uh, And uh, besides his academic work, uh, Richard writes, I think regularly now, uh, for the American Conservative, Uh, Then we have, uh, to provide commentary, uh, Walter McDougall, who's a professor of history and uh, the Alloy Anson Professor of International Relations at the University of Pennsylvania. He is the author of a bunch of books, uh, most recently, Freedom Just Around the Corner, A New American History, 1585 through 1828. And before that, he wrote uh, Promised Land, uh, Crusader State. Uh, the American encounter with the world since 1776, which deals a lot with uh, the changing ideology of American foreign policy. Uh, And then finally, we have uh, Derek Liebert, who's uh, a partner at the consulting firm Map AG uh, in Zurich. Uh, And uh, when he's not uh, doing that, uh, he's writing uh, top-notch histories, most recently, Magic and Mayhem, The Delusions of American Foreign Policy from Korea to Afghanistan. Uh, And uh, he taught for a long time at Georgetown, and a few decades ago, he was the founding editor of the journal, uh, a founding editor of the journal International Security, which is, to me, the top international relations and security journal in academia. Um, So uh, with that, I will uh, turn the mic over to Richard.
1: Thank you, Ben. Uh, I'm grateful for the invitation to be here today. And I've looked forward to this very much, and I'm honored to have uh, these other panelists here to talk about the book. <clears throat> and we will have time for a QA, which I appreciate. Historian David Herbert Donald published a classic essay in 1951 with the memorable title, Getting Right with Lincoln. The phrase, getting right, once commonplace in American evangelicalism, might not be familiar any longer to modern audiences. At one time, it was used by revivalists, as they called sinners and backsliders, to repent, come down the aisle and get right with Jesus. Donald's clever point was that Republican and Democratic politicians, from the moment they caught wind of the public's outpouring of grief over the president's death in 1865, rushed to align themselves and their policies with the martyr president, no matter how tenuous the connection John Winthrop has endured a similar fate over the past half century, since the late Ted Sorensen used a few lines from his 1630 discourse, The Model of Christian Charity, to set the tone of John F. Kennedy's administration in January 1961. In this speech, delivered before the Massachusetts General Court a few weeks before the inauguration, the president-elect claimed he was guided by the same aspiration as Winthrop's more than 300 years before to see government conduct itself as an exemplary city on a hill. By the time Ronald Reagan had finished remaking the metaphor into an emblem of his own wide-ranging domestic and foreign policy agenda, politicians both left and right had lined up to get right with Winthrop and his hilltop city. As Ben mentioned in my book, In Search of the City on a Hill, I pieced together the 400-year-long story of how the metaphor that Winthrop borrowed from the New Testament, borrowed from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, was incorporated into the American civil religion. By the 2012 presidential campaign, the city on a hill had become an inescapable trope for American exceptionalism. Republican hopefuls ran the tattered and weary metaphor into the ground. But just because it has become a cliche doesn't mean we have heard the last of it. Getting right with Winthrop requires, of course, first, getting Winthrop right. And by right, I don't mean historically accurate. I mean useful as a precedent for present policies, whether those policies happen to line up with history or not. Democrats and Republicans have invoked the city on a hill to call the nation back to first principles or to inspire it to fulfill the deferred dreams that have made America America since 1630. How often the Democrats have invoked the city on a hill may come as a surprise, but the evidence is everywhere. At the 1984 Democratic National Convention, New York Governor Mario Cuomo thrilled the delegates and won the admiration even of Republican pundits for his Tale of Two Cities speech. He affirmed America as a shining city, but blasted Reagan for his heartless social Darwinism and building an opulent city on a hill for the rich and powerful at the expense of ordinary working people. Cuomo challenged voters, quote, not to settle for two cities, but to work to build one city, indivisible, shining for all its people. Four years later, Michael Dukakis explicitly defended a democratic city on a hill as the true successor to John Winthrop's vision. The idea of community, he said, was planted in the new world by the first governor of Massachusetts. We must, Dukakis urged, paraphrasing Winthrop a bit, love one another with a pure heart fervently. We must delight in each other, make each other's condition our own, rejoice together, mourn together, and suffer together. We must, Winthrop said, be knit together as one. Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, Robert Kennedy's eldest daughter, has repeatedly over the last few years tried to recover the Democratic city on a hill from the Republican near monopoly on its symbolism. In a 2012 interview with George Stephanopoulos, the former Maryland Lieutenant Governor praised America's tradition of diligence, hard work, honor, truthfulness, and fair play as the, quote, civic faith that makes America exceptional, a shining city on a hill, end quote. This is not Ayn Rand's vision, version of individualism, she hastened to add, quote, the vision of a city on a hill inspired both John Kennedy and Ronald Reagan. It wasn't an I on a hill, but a city with an inclusive, effective government and lots of different people working at many different jobs while caring for our parents, our children, and those too sick to care for themselves. Now, we don't have to wonder if Townsend had Winthrop and the Puritans in mind. Back in 2007, she praised these New World settlers for their extroverted commitment to social justice. They were, she said approvingly, like the Hebrew prophets condemning quote, selfishness, greed, and neglect of the less fortunate. To make her case, she quoted the same part of the model of Christian charity that Michael Dukakis had used in 1988. We must delight in each other, make each other's condition our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor, and suffer together. But this city is about more than domestic policy for Democrats. In an address at a 2005 conference, at the University of St. Thomas Law School devoted to American exceptionalism, former Vice President Walter Mondale said, the idea of American exceptionalism runs through almost all of American history, probably beginning during the colonial days when John Winthrop famously told his flock in Boston Harbor that we shall be as a city upon a hill, to act in covenant with God, a new Israel, to live nobly for his service. We thought of ourselves as different from other societies, new, innocent, and free from the old cynical world, committed to doing good. That commitment to doing good became Mondale's defense of the kind of multilateral, internationalist, moralizing foreign policy practiced by his boss, Jimmy Carter. At the end of his talk, he urged the law students in Minneapolis to quote, go out and help build and strengthen that indispensable, exceptional America that city upon a hill that the world needs so desperately. The Republican vision of the city on a hill can hardly match the Democrats' version in its intensity, commitment to exceptionalism, and affirmation of the Puritan heritage. But the Republican metropolis has become the most familiar one because of Ronald Reagan's skill at appropriating Winthrop. At some point in the 50s or 60s, Reagan began collecting favorite quotations on 4x6 cards to use for public speaking. On one of these cards, he copied out just a few lines from Winthrop's model of Christian charity, beginning with the familiar words, We shall be as a city, and ending with the warning against becoming a story and a byword throughout the world. He never used another part of Winthrop's discourse. All are part of this short quotation, different from the one Dukakis, Townsend, and other Democrats would use later, appeared in a few dozen speeches from 1969 to 1989, most fully developed, of course, in Reagan's farewell address from the Oval Office in January 1989. The Puritan metaphor came to mean a lot of things for Reagan, but the city always served as Winthrop's prediction, Reagan's own word, prediction for the America he envisioned. Among Reagan's uses for the city were individualism, free markets, the kind of racial harmony sought by Martin Luther King, Jr., a generous immigration policy, and an active foreign policy that mobilized the nation's moral and military might for the advancement of freedom and democracy worldwide. After Reagan's death in 2004, the metaphor was heard from time to time coming from Republican presidents but mostly or even entirely in connection with Reagan, his passing, and his place in American memory. But in the 2008 and 2012 campaigns, the city on a hill soared to heights never before attained in Republican rhetoric. The purpose seemed clear. Republicans had every reason to campaign arm-in-arm with the memory of Ronald Reagan, now honored by Republicans and Democrats alike as a popular figure who belonged to all the American people regardless of party affiliation. John McCain used it at the New Hampshire primary and on his campaign website. Sarah Palin used it in what seemed like every campaign stop. In the first pages of her 2010 memoir, America by Heart, the former Alaska governor fused the city on a hill with exceptionalism, which had become its latest incarnation. America is an exceptional nation, she wrote, the shining city on a hill that Reagan believed it is. And into that exceptionalist story, she wove John F. Kennedy. Citing his inaugural, she wrote, quote, His view, Kennedy's view of America as a place with a meaning and a mission of redemption is unmistakable. Every Republican candidate in 2012 except Ron Paul used the city on a hill. Thanks to the magic of Google alerts, I happen to know that they did so almost daily. (laughs) Here is one use of the metaphor by Mitt Romney. In one paragraph, Romney managed to gather up the Declaration of Independence, with bits of Lincoln and wrapped it all up with Winthrop. Quote, We love this country, he said. We know it's an exceptional land. We understand that when the founders wrote those words that said the Creator endowed us with our rights and uh, that they were right, That among those rights are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. We're a nation given those freedoms. We share them with people around the world. This is the greatest nation the world has seen in part because of that extraordinary beginning, that idea, as Paul Ryan said. We are not going to change America into something we don't recognize. We're going to restore to America the principles that made America the hope of the earth. We're going to do everything in our power to keep America strong, in our homes, in our economy, in our military, second to none. This nation has a mission to perform. We're going to make it happen. We're going to keep America the shining city on a hill." One paragraph, no ellipses. At the moment, the fragmentary city-on-a-hill metaphor, stripped of all historical and theological context, stripped even of the minimal context Reagan placed it in, seems irresistible to Republican campaigners. It doesn't occur to Democrats or Republicans, liberals or conservatives, that we could simply let Winthrop be Winthrop and, more radically, let the city on a hill be the city found in the Sermon on the Mount not secularized, politicized or mobilized for any other agenda alien to it. But this leaves unanswered the question of what so many Americans, and even foreign leaders talking about America, have at stake in the political use of the city on a hill. I think a non-messianic, non-imperial use of the metaphor might actually be possible, but I think its political deployment is historically inseparable from nationalism. The drive to find the real Puritan city on a hill and to get right with it sustains, even unknowingly, a single national story. Modern nation states, as they consolidated power in the 19th century, needed one story to bind them together. That story claims to see only one point of origin, embracing one people with one history and one civil religion. In America's nationalist story, out of that point of origin flowed all of America's defining ideas, institutions, and aspirations. The rest of geographic America and the rest of American history had somehow to be descended from the first settlers of New England. All our best domestic policies and our highest duties to the rest of the world started in and around Boston. If none of this is true, then there is not much reason to keep going back to the Puritans exclusively and habitually in search for the origins of this or that reform proposal, liberal or conservative, and to the model of Christian charity as an urtext of the American identity. A decentralized federal republic would have less at stake in the city on a hill. It could accommodate the historical Puritans, warts and all. Let me elaborate as I finish. The nationalist story assumes first that Winthrop is a founder, and that the founding of America dates from 1630. Democrats and Republicans both have to own Winthrop in this way in order for his words to be authoritative for modern America. For both parties, and for liberal Christians and evangelicals, uh, hi, liberal Christians and for evangelicals, his words have be, have to have been oracular. Secondly, and closely related, the single nationalist story assumes that the Puritans were the fathers of the United States, the progenitors of its institutions and character and sense of calling and duty in the world, or at least responsible for all that is best about us. New England historians in the first part of the 19th century worked hard to make this so in the American consciousness. Southerners noticed and took offense. Virginia Cavaliers were in no mood to be told that they were really sons and daughters of Puritan roundheads. Thirdly, the nationalist story needs the model of Christian charity to be part of the scripture of the American civil religion. For this to happen, Winthrop's discourse has to be stripped of most of its highly particular theology and biblicism. There is no other way to bring it whole into the kind of civil religion Robert Bella described in 1960, excuse me, 1967 with its liturgy, ritual, secular saints, and national church calendar. The Winthrop of the civil religion is very ecumenical. This Winthrop can be the ancestor of Catholics, Greek Orthodox, disciples of Christ, Presbyterian sons of Norwegian Methodist ministers, that's Mondale, and Mormons. <laughs> The historical Winthrop, the complete text of his model of Christian charity, and the Biblical origins of the city on a hill complicate life for exceptionalists and their nationalist story. No offense, but the Puritans didn't have us in mind. The living, breathing Winthrop of history will hardly do as part of a usable past for modern politics or foreign policy. Left, right, liberal, conservative, modest, or interventionist. And the problem is especially acute for Republicans who favor a return to limited government, free market principles, a rollback of the welfare state, and a realist foreign policy. Winthrop's own model for his community was biblical Israel and beyond that, the church of the first century. These model communities called their exceptional people to be knit together in a way and to a degree that cannot form the basis for limited government at home and a restrained foreign policy abroad. Thank you.
2: Richard Gamble has written a very important book, and the measure of its importance is the deafening silence it has received from mainstream media. There's no review in the New York Times, or the Wall Street Journal, or any major journal not named the American Conservative, the American Spectator, or National Review. Moreover, the author of the American Spectator Review was a ringer. a former Hillsdale College student of Professor Gamble, whereas the National Review's coverage consisted of an online interview that was polite but seemed to miss the point. Thus did the interviewer quote, without irony, a Fox News poll that asked the following question. Since the earliest days of the country, many have called the United States a shining city on a hill meaning a country that all others want to be like. Do you think that is still the case today? There are at least three planted axioms there, all false, just like Fox News not to notice. Now, I take this to mean that the major media, controlled as they are by liberal internationalists and neoconservatives, found Richard's book inconvenient and decided to spike it. In neither of the major parties are the ideas of realists, libertarians, or Christians permissible, even those reflecting indisputable historical fact. So I cast a wider net, and I googled the book, which yielded a delightfully eclectic mix of more or less obscure websites that do appreciate the book's importance. They included opc.org, Orthodox Presbyterian Church, The Gospel Kirkcenter.org, the University Bookman site, the Aquila Report.com, Reformed Theological Seminary, The Imaginative America's Zionica.com, a Liberty University site, Intellectual Takeout.org, <laughs> religionandpolitics.org, billed as Fit for Polite Company, kimriddlebarger.squarespace.com, devoted to reformed theology and eschatology, thenewmanbookstore.com, a Catholic site, joshuajudgesruth.blogspot.com, a Baptist site, and my personal favorites presbyterianblues.wordpress.org, and housewifetheologian.org. <laughs> that was
1: <good>
2: <laughs> My own recent article in, uh, on the subject of American exceptionalism, which describes Gamble's book at some length, doesn't appear until page 11 of the Google search results, so much for the visibility of the Foreign Policy Research Institute website. But my article is very germane because my research on the origins of American exceptionalism parallels Gamble's exposure of the city on a hill. What does it mean to say that the United States is exceptional? If it means just unique, then the claim is unexceptional because no two countries are exactly alike. If it just means that Americans have believed their country is special, then as a British skeptic has written, There's nothing exceptional about this exceptionalism. All great nations cherish national myths. If it means that the USA is exceptionally exceptionally virtuous, given its ideals of liberty, equality, justice, prosperity, social mobility, and peace with all nations, then ipso facto the nation is exceptionally vicious for falling so short of those ideals. If the term means rather that Americans are somehow exempted from the laws of entropy governing all other nations, that, as Bismarck is reported to have quipped, God has a special providence for fools, drunks, and the United States, then such exceptionalism can only be proven subspecie aeternitatis. Indeed, the very illusion that a nation enjoys a divine dispensation may perversely inspire the pride that goeth before a fall or the many bad ends to which reckless adolescents are prone. Finally, if American exceptionalism means that its power, values, and indispensable status render the United States exempt from the rules of behavior it makes and enforces for other nations, why, then enemies, neutrals, and allies alike are sure to push back. Exceptionalism is simply more trouble and more danger than it's worth. It either means nothing at all, or altogether too much. But the principal reason to banish the term from historical discourse is that the icky, polysyllabic, Latinate moniker didn't even exist until the mid-20th century. No Puritan colonist, founding patriot, Civil War statesman, Romantic poet, pastor, or propagandist employed the word. To be sure, most of them believed the United States to be an historic undertaking, even a new order for the ages. But far from believing their nation to be an exception to the rules of nature governing other men and nations, they either hoped their example would transform the world, or they feared that a lack of Republican virtue here would doom the experiment. In neither case, would Americans stand apart from the human race. Not until 1835 did Alexis de Tocqueville catalog the the features of new world democracy and conclude, quote, the position of the Americans is therefore quite exceptional and it may be believed that no democratic people will ever be placed in a similar one, unquote. Okay, but note, however, that he applied the term to Americans' position rather than to the people themselves and uh, disputed the notion that American institutions and values could ever be universal. In any event, his adjectival usage had no echo and inspired no noun, no ism, among Americans themselves. Exceptionalism as a sort of birthright is an anachronism. Flash forward to 1906, when another foreigner, sociologist Werner Zumbart, asked why American working classes showed so little interest in socialism. He identified many reasons uh, for this, but nowhere did he employ any word that could be fairly translated as exceptionalism. Zumbart referred instead to the idiosyncrasies of the spiritual culture or the American popular soul, die Eigenarten der Amerikanischen Volksseele. What was the source of this spirit, he asked, Must one hypothesize that it just dropped from the heavens on the chosen people, auf das Auserwählte Volk? Not at all, because the same entrepreneurial spirit could be found in London or Berlin. It was just purer and more pervasive in the United States thanks to such factors as the Protestant ethic, democratic consensus, two-party system, high standard of living, social mobility, and the safety valve of an open frontier. For Werner Zumbart, Americans occupied an extreme on the sociological spectrum, but were not exceptional, not off the charts. The real origins of the notion uh, of an exceptional United States lurk in the recondite disputations of the two greatest transnational movements of the early 20th century, the Roman Catholic Church and the Communist International Both had reason to fear that Americans might be immune to their presumptively universal appeals. Really, ever since 1784, when Bishop John Carroll set up the first Catholic diocese in the U.S., the Vatican displayed confusion about how to grow a doctrinal hierarchical church in a mostly Protestant land that enjoyed religious freedom and material plenty. A century later, the big immigration wave of the 1890s, the Vatican displayed confusion. Oh, sorry, uh, the European prelates uh, grew alarmed about reports from American bishops about the erosion of doctrine and obedience among Catholic immigrants and their children. So Pope Leo, the 18th, uh, Leo XIII issued an encyclical in 1899, Testem Benevolentiae Nostrae, which condemned the heresy of Americanism. A name, I noticed, to my amusement, uh, the encyclical says, uh, to which there is no reason to take exception. (laughs) (laughs) It attributed attributed Americanism to the nation's revolutionary Anglo-Saxon origins, its individualism, liberalism, egalitarianism, and separation of church and state. Finally, in the 1920s, American communist leader Jay Lovestone rendered a diagnosis of American society that echoed those of Zumbart and the Vatican. His purpose was to explain, or explain away, his comrades' uh, failure through their agitation and propaganda uh, to raise the consciousness of the workers of Pittsburgh or Detroit. They made so little progress in America. Well, the reason, argued Lovestone, was that capitalism in the US was so exceptionally productive and stable that it was hard to raise the consciousness of the proletariat. Hence, the revolution would take longer to develop here than in other countries. Joseph Stalin wasn't having it. He anathematized this theory as a form of deviationism. Well, then Wall Street promptly crashed and the American Communist Party officially coined the term at its 1930 Congress in the form of an obituary. Quote, the storm of the economic crisis in the United States blew down the house of cards of American exceptionalism, unquote. How then did the term become a fetish? It remained in currency among leftist intellectuals throughout the 1930s when the Great Depression failed to radicalize Americans and the 1940s, when World War II propelled the U.S. to global dominance. Then the Cold War broke out, at which point it was probably just a matter of time before someone turned the Stalinist term of derision into a patriotic badge of honor and stamped it on the whole of American history. That someone was Max Lerner. A former editor of The Nation turned Cold War liberal and the author of the thousand-page America as a Civilization of 1957. That was the book with the famous quote, every man has two countries, his own and America. Lerner was careful to reject the spread-eagle theorists, I'm quoting, seeking to depict America as immune from the forces of history and the laws of life, unquote. And he knew that the no socialism in America theory might be used to suppress dissent. McCarthy era, and so forth. Still, he concluded, quote, these distortions should not blind us to the valid elements in the theory of exceptionalism. America represents the naked embodiment of the most dynamic elements of modern Western history, unquote. Well, exceptionalism just dovetailed perfectly with a new orthodoxy among political scientists that Harvard professor Louis Hartz dubbed America's liberal tradition. Born free of an aristocracy and a national church, Americans had no need for Europe's ideological radicalism or, for that matter, anti-ideological conservatism. Historians such as Daniel Borston, soon-to-be Librarian of Congress, followed Perry Miller in tracing uh, uh, this exceptionalism back to the Puritans, and they inspired a generation of textbooks which spread it throughout the, the, the land. Sociologists, such as Seymour Martin Lipset, put the concept to good use as a heuristic device. Most of all, the idea of an America set apart by Providence and endowed with a special mission to redeem the whole human race dovetailed perfectly with the need to mobilize Americans for a holy war against godless communism. Those were the years Those were the years when Truman and Eisenhower assiduously courted ecumenical religious support for the Cold War, both at home and abroad. Those were the years when the United States both recognized Israel and courted Muslims, bankrolled Christian Democrats in Europe, and established diplomatic relations with the Vatican. Those were the years when the Judeo-Christian tradition became a civilizational motto, and the White House encouraged former communist Will Herberg to codify the civil faith in Protestant Catholic Jew, Uh, an essay in, in in American Religious Sociology, 1955. Those were the years when under God was added to the Pledge of Allegiance and the National Prayer Breakfast was established. Those were the years when Eisenhower said, our form of government has no sense unless it is founded in a deeply felt religious faith and I don't care what it is." Unquote. Those were the years when political rhetoric became steeped in what sociologist Robert Bella called God talk, and the first Roman Catholic president, John F. Kennedy, played the role of civic high priest better than anyone prior to Ronald Reagan. If the term was of Cold War vintage, how come computerized word searches show that references to American exceptionalism exploded, literally from hundreds to tens of thousands, only after the Cold War was over. My historian's instinct tells me the question itself is the answer. The Cold War was over. Globalization and multiculturalism were the new trends, and American identity was being challenged as never before. What made exceptionalist rhetoric ubiquitous was the fact that it was now contested and therefore deployed by almost all sides in the culture wars of the 1990s, the foreign wars of the 2000s, and now the political wars of the 2010s. In sum, the myth of American exceptionalism entered our lexicon as historical gloss for the campaign to persuade a skeptical war-weary nation that global commitments like the United Nations and the Truman Doctrine really fulfilled America's hoariest, holiest calling. Exceptionalism was not an archetype of the promised land, but an artifact of the Crusader state. Richard Gamble told that National Review interviewer that we're in desperate need of a new metaphor. His book concludes with the observation that instead of arguing best, how to frame the American mission of, uh, in terms of the city on a hill, i.e., should we choose the liberal internationalist uh, or the neocon version? We ought instead to have a debate, quote, between exceptionalists of all sorts on one side and skeptics on the other, that is, between those who believe the U.S. is somehow exempt from human finitude, the lust for domination, and the limits of resources and power, and those who do not because exceptionalism has tangled up within it the problem of civil religion, unquote. Gamble is utterly right, which is precisely why no such debate will occur in the larger (laughs) public square. Civil religion owns the right and the left, as Obama's second inaugural ceremony amply, amply proved. Civil religion is simply voracious, and civil religion Serves a jealous God. Thank you.
3: It's an honor to be on the same platform as two of America's most distinguished historians. What value I might be able to add might come from reflecting on how these notions of exceptionalism, of America as a city on a hill, play out in today's foreign policymaking and in America's engagement with the world. One's reminded of that 1960s New Yorker cartoon. There is some barbarian tyrant sitting on his throne surrounded by skulls and slaves, and one of his Plunkies is cowering before him and says, oh sire, oh sire, the Athenians have just sailed in with all their offers of spears and shields and other military assistance, but you're going to have to endure their tedious lectures about democracy, too. (laughs) For a lifetime, these notions of America as the conveyor of democracy. Have framed foreign policy making. And to be sure, there have always been other great powers that have tried to impose or relay their national myths upon the world. The British Empire, to be sure, with Churchill in his last years as Prime Minister, 1954, believing that the British civilizing mission to take the Hottentots out of the jungles, as he felicitously put it, would have to last until the 21st century. Or the French notion of civilization and how it would be conveyed through France. But what sets America apart here is that we are the only nation, let alone great power, who thinks that we can make this happen overnight. promptly that we can nation-build in the length of a presidential term. How does it manifest itself as we look at particular policies? If one spends time, as I've been able privileged to do, with U.S. Special Forces, one encounters Green Berets, and the Green Beret notion of to liberate the oppressed, the oppresso liber. This is a concept that is truly believed by young lieutenant colonels, that they will indeed liberate the the oppressed, and that they are on such a civilizing mission. One might be able to understand it among such enthusiasts, But why does so much of the rest of the country tend to buy into this, this notion of conveying the American experience so easily, so overnight? Part of it may have been due to the first post-World War II deep engagement with the world in the Marshall Plan. Surely the redemption of Japan and of Germany are superb examples of how America can embrace and redeem even the worst of global actors. And ever since, of course, we've spoken about a Marshall Plan for Iraq, a Marshall Plan for South Vietnam, a Marshall Plan, you name it, for Haiti, not looking at the distinctions. We can see this notion of American idealism being misinterpreted our efficacy in conveying our deals, perhaps by the very success with which we have conveyed popular culture to the world. If foreigners are so enthusiastic about adopting American popular culture, surely they'll be equally pleased to embrace the ideals conveyed in the Declaration of Independence. So for example, if we see 63 Starbucks in Beijing, that might tell us something about the Chinese enthusiasm for being just like us. Or let's look at Iraq and see how well this notion of pop culture translates into political reality. Recall Saddam Hussein's last presidential election, the memorable election of 2002, in which he got some 110% (laughs) of the popular vote. But do we remember what Saddam's campaign theme song was? and it could be heard throughout Baghdad in trucks with speakers. And his campaign theme song was Whitney Houston's I Will Always Love You. (laughs) If evil doers like that will so engagingly embrace American pop culture, surely their peoples, even perhaps themselves, can somehow be persuaded to be just like us. What this results in, of course, and you've heard it here several times, is really loopy views of what America can accomplish overseas. And not incidentally, loopy interpretations of history by people far less qualified than the authorities on stage to address history. We think of Jim Woolsey right before the invasion of Iraq former director of the CIA, insisting that no, 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 the purpose is not to Americanize the world. It is to make the world more like Athens. And this notion that everyone wants to be like us, that these American ideals can be conveyed expediently, immediately, overnight, ends up in tragedies, most recently, Afghanistan where one gets a a think tanker like uh, Fred Kagan in 2009 saying, no, of, of course, there is no doubt we shall succeed against such weaker foes in Afghanistan, weaker foes than the Iraqis. The notion, again, that everyone will buy in or is eager to do so. One can go on, of course, with these examples of screw-ups, it results in part not only from the ideals that arise with the best of intentions and generosity, from the only nation founded on a creed, as laid out in the Declaration of Independence, but from a nation that is truly, as Emerson said, the nation of tomorrow, We believe that we have the future in our hands and that we can, in fact, convey it to so much of the rest of the world. Where does this leave us now? What is ahead? Every generation or so, America has such encounters with reality. After the failed wars of Iraq and Afghanistan, after Vietnam, after what was so quickly forgotten to be a failure, in korea there would be moments of stepping back moments of prudence and i would predict that despite our enthusiasm despite 50 percent of our fellow citizens saying they've been born again that this notion of moralism of being able to convey our ideals so easily is going to chill out for the foreseeable future and that we will have an engagement with the world in which we can again return to the notion that perhaps less is more. Perhaps we can be more effective by less of a political, military presence, and that we can indeed play to our strengths, that we can play to those ideals, play to our business and industrial strengths, and be very much such as America was at its founding. Thanks. All
0: right, um, before we go to uh, audience questions, I just want to um, uh, use my prerogative as as moderator and ask uh, one uh, question uh, for Richard and uh, one for uh, the group. Uh, The first is, um, you suggest uh, that there, uh, maybe not that there is, but there at least ought to be a schism uh, between the modern uh, conservative, neoconservative right, I guess you could call it, and at least some set of um, religious conservatives, or whether or not they're conservative, uh, Americans who uh, are upset uh, by uh, the use of City on a Hill and and other uh, biblical language as sort of a tool of the state. Um, So I'm just wondering uh, to what extent that schism actually exists, uh, if it's something that's going away or if it's something that's... um, Growing,
1: Right. Should I stay here? Or? Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, tug on me if I go too long in my answer. Uh, okay. This is something of critical concern for me, and I'll, I'll start with, with a story from 2002, and some of you have heard me tell this, but uh, when George Bush gave his speech out in front of the Statue of Liberty on the first anniversary of 9-11, very short address, you can see the YouTube video of it, about eight minutes. At the end of that speech, he said that the light has shined in darkness and the darkness has not overcome it, referring to America, American power and ideals. And that's a quotation from John 1, 5. I was so angry uh, as a Christian, uh, I don't remember what I yelled at the television that night, And then the next day, I naively, uh, eagerly went on to the internet to find out just what this had stirred up uh, in the American culture, Uh, went looking for the outrage and found nothing. I found one left-wing theologian at Duke University who complained about this appropriation of the Gospel of John. And if you pause for a moment to think, if you're familiar with the opening of the Gospel of John, uh, it is the a very poetic uh, description of the incarnate Christ as the Word. Uh, it is one of the most cherished parts of the New Testament in talking about uh, Christ and the divinity of Christ and the mission of Christ, the incarnate Word. And to simply lift that and transpose it into a political context was, was just outrageous to me. Uh, and then his speechwriter, uh, Gerson, in a book like Heroic Conservatism, would try to put all of our concerns uh, to rest. This is really a very good thing to be doing, uh, to to be reusing the Bible in this way, and nobody should be upset about it. So that that's really was a, was a moment that focused my own thinking, that there really was something at stake here. And my concern was that uh, political theology in America, studies of, uh, the study of political theology in America and of civil religion was too heavily dominated by the left, by the academic <clears throat> left. And generally, that's in the mood of need to expose religion and how dangerous it is to politics. And I, I felt that there were so few uh, on the right, I don't even like these terms, but and I know probably you folks don't either, uh, but uh, there were no conservatives or, or traditionalists or conservative Christians who, it seemed to me, could make a much stronger case against this kind of mixing uh, and appropriation. And I was concerned to give voice to... another another way of critiquing the political use of of the Bible, and and presenting it as a problem of the left and the right, Democrats and Republicans. And my goal is very, very simple. Um, This is what Santayana said about William James, that he made people notice the genteel tradition. And as soon as they noticed it, it was dead. I, that, that's not how, quite how big my ambition is. I'm not, I hope I'm not that vain. But I do think that by enabling, equipping people to, to notice something like City on a Hill or notice John 1-5 being used in a political speech, if you notice it, you'll think about it. If you think about it, you might hesitate before using it. And you might hesitate before feeling good about it. That America must be in better shape now because our leaders just quoted from the Bible uh, that kind of naive uh, complacency uh, self deception is the kind of thing i I'm, I'm trying to expose
0: okay, and the uh, question for the group is um, the idea came up I think that the the use uh, in in modern politics of uh, or the the sort of reuse of of the City on the hill metaphor across our history uh, and generally, the change in American exceptionalism or the creation of American exceptionalism uh, in in a form quite different than um, what early Americans thought of as as what made their this country exceptional, whether or not they called it exceptionalism that those uh, changes were useful for uh, the needs of uh, American foreign policy that uh, we uh, our power position uh, in the world uh, changed radically uh, in the course of our history, and uh, that, uh, I think it was suggested by uh, all of you, in a sense, that that required uh, some new ideas. So uh, I'm just sort of wondering, uh, to what extent our ideas about foreign policy, and even more broadly, the sort of isms that we use to explain what we're up to are... PR for uh, policies that are caused by something else, whether it's you know the requirements of international politics or uh, our wealth or uh, some other force. Anybody who wants to start?
2: Well, that's an excellent question. It's one I've struggled with my whole career and I will probably die struggling with it. Uh, it's a problem of agency. Um, is this civil religion just propaganda that we use to make to feel good about stuff we're doing for other reasons? Or is it the, a real motivation, a real motivating factor? Whatever other motives there may be, that, that, that this, that this uh, messianic um, impulse is genuine uh, for uh, many, many Americans, and perhaps for a few leaders like Woodrow Wilson or George W. Bush, and so forth. Uh, there's no is, historians have no epistemology. That's the dirty little secret of our profession. <laughs> and we will never, will never solve this. We'll never uh, come to a, uh, an agreed upon answer. We'll just argue about it forever and try to and try to uh, unmask falsehood. In which we're not going to find the truth with a capital T, but we can through our methodology expose falsehood. And there's been a lot of there's been a lot of falsehood out there recently. Um, I would, uh, I'd have to take it on a case-by-case basis. When, uh, when someone, when, when a president or an administration is pursuing a foreign policy that at the time to, uh, to uh, uh, keen-minded people or in retrospect to everybody was stupid and didn't work, that they, what were they thinking? Well, maybe they were thinking in religious terms Maybe they were thinking in messianic terms. Maybe they saw, you know, delu- had delusions. Uh, uh, if, on the other hand, we can look back and we can say, you know what, um, I can, you know, th- there were some pretty hard headed reasons for doing that, and this rhetoric is probably just gloss. Well, that may very well be true. So I would say, ye shall know them by their fruits, if I can quote the Bible, <laughs> uh, and, and, and analyze it that way. Someone like Senator Albert Beveridge, uh, who was a um, Republican progressive from Indiana, um, a, a, and a uh, was the number one drum beater, the number one evangelist for uh, an American crusading American foreign policy around the turn of the century. McKinley went into the Spanish-American War. Teddy Roosevelt was all in favor of expansion. Uh, and there were a bunch of imperialists out there, but but Beveridge was the one who really sold it. Sold oh. it to the To the masses, to the to the to the uh, he, be, he made his first great speech at the at the um, uh, at the Indiana State Republican Convention in 1898, kick off the convention and se- kick off the campaign in September of 1898, um, and uh, and he basically said, God has raised us to great power, not to hide our lamp under a bushel, but to do great things in the world to raise up other people. People say, well, but what right do we have to govern the Filipinos or the Cubans or the Puerto Ricans? Why? We govern the Indians without their consent. We govern our children without their consent, and so forth. And he goes on with a lot of white man's burden stuff. But he's extremely sincere. Now, was he just a salesman? Uh, Or was he a true believer, but was... Used, you might say, or sort of pushed out there to sell it to the people by the real architects of American foreign policy, who had some good, sound reasons for being imperialist at the time. Uh, I don't know, but that's an excellent question.
3: Let me jump in here because it indeed is an excellent question. To be sure, there are hard, yes. <laughs> to be sure, there are hard-headed reasons for various lamentable engagements on which we have embarked. One thinks of Vietnam. There were some extremely good reasons to intervene in Vietnam. South Vietnam was an ally. It was a member of the United Nations. It was one of the most solvent borrowers from the World Bank. Why should we let it be steamrolled over by another distinct state, as it presented itself, deploying the worst forms of terror. So there were excellent reasons to go into Vietnam, as arguably there were solid reasons to go into Iraq and uh, Afghanistan to be sure. But what fascinates is why do we always think it's going to be easy? Why do we think we can do it overnight? And that's where you get these notions of everybody wanting to be like us, and wouldn't we all prefer to live in Los Angeles? These notions that we can quickly transform and convey the American ideals. And that, in many ways, set us apart. The British Empire never thought that. The French, with their mission civilatrice, never thought that. But we believe we can convey our ideals overnight because everyone really would rather be here.
1: Mention of Vietnam uh, made me think immediately of Lyndon Johnson's Johns Hopkins speech in '65, I think, um, about about victory in in Vietnam. It's a very painful speech to read, uh, or uh, uh, with all the irony, unintended irony in it. Uh, but one of the most bizarre moments in the American civil religion happens in that speech near the end he quoted from Deuteronomy 30. just happens to be the same section that John Winthrop quoted from at the end of the model of Christian charity. I don't know if Johnson had any idea that that was the case. But he said, perhaps it is true, what what we are witnessing in our time in Vietnam is is the fulfillment of the prophecy uh, given so many thousands of years ago uh, and he starts reading from Deuteronomy 30 about choosing life. Um, mm. It's it's a stunning moment, and you have to ask the kind of question you're asking, Ben. You you you, and as my students always want to know, is he serious? <laughs> uh, and I always have to nuance the thing. I mean, to think about this carefully. But inside, I'm saying, is he serious? <laughs> uh, so you, it is very difficult for a historian to sort out, no matter what our instincts tell us, our gut feelings are. Uh, with operating within, uh, with the tools of our discipline, it is very hard for us to say, what is what is the real motivation here? We can't look into anyone's heart. And we can think about purposes. We can watch the consequences, as others have said. And I, I don't know. I, if. Should we take? Is it true that American civil religion is being cynically manipulated in the way somebody like Polybius said uh, the Romans were cynically manipulating, invented uh, their religion because it keeps the the masses obedient? Uh, Are there people using civil religion that cynically? I would guess yes, but. I can't prove that, I uh, have my hunches. But I think another, the, the other side of this question is also interesting. What is about us as a people? What is it about our culture that finds this plausible and not funny? Why isn't anybody laughing? Or why aren't enough people laughing? Why doesn't the audience at, at Hopkins burst out laughing, uh, suddenly assuming they must have Ended up in a in a satirical skit of some kind, a preview of Saturday Night Live or something, but we're not laughing and we take this so seriously about ourselves that, that we have this sort of uh, divine mission, a, a God's new Israel. That's the other puzzle, and, and and there are there are some. There's a side to that which is in some ways. Um, I am not say it's charming, but there's something there's something that seems kind of noble about the American people in thinking this about themselves, but there's also a, a troubling side of that national self-consciousness.
0: Okay. Um, well, I, I guess sort of every political ideology is, is, in some sense, an agent of some political purpose, even if that purpose is sort of buried in the murk yeah. of the historical past. Um, I'll uh, take questions. Um, Uh, Wait to be called on, uh, and uh, please make the question a question, not a speech, and uh, announce your uh, name and affiliation. We'll start in the back. Um,
4: This is a wonderful subject, and um, I want to...
0: That's John Henry, right? John Henry,
4: Committee for the Republic. The question is, (laughs) uh, you talk about civil religion, and um, it's my understanding uh, of our history is that um, when the Puritans uh, didn't have a civil religion, they had a a theocracy. And in Virginia, uh, you know, (coughs) Baptists um, um, were not discriminated against, and there was the Church of England until the American Revolution. So those things that are Caesar, Caesar, and those things, the Lord, the Lord was not practiced. And so, when the American Revolution came, we um, we, we had, had separation, separation of church and state. So that's my understanding. So the City of the Hill thing is is a hark back to the um, the, the theocratic pre-constitutional um, uh, American exceptionalism. Then the next event uh, is the Civil War, which I think. Um, uh, it, um, we were talking at breakfast when you said the Southerners basically have all the ideas that the South lost the war, uh, won the war military, but lost the peace. And the two Southern ideas today that compete on in, in, within within the civil religion of the warfare state is that uh, the government's the devil at home and the country's an angel abroad, which is Southern nationalism, sectionalism, which is... The Republican Party has adopted, and then the Democratic exceptionalism, which Wilson, what William Jennings Bryan wasn't able to to sell, a Midwesterner, um, Wilson was, which was the government is an uh, angel at home and an angel abroad, and and those are the two ideas that compete with each other within the the civil religion of the warfare state, which both. Democrats embrace because they want the welfare state and the Republicans embrace because um, They're competing again. They don't want the welfare state, but they use the warfare. They they get political uh, power out of Embracing the worst warfare state. So that's my that's my theory and tell me where that's wrong uh, What am I what am I missing here?
1: Let me start where you started with even just the question of civil religion. One thing that's important to keep in mind is what we're actually talking about with civil religion. There are at least two main kinds of civil religion, and one I'm much more comfortable with. There is a civil religion that simply uh, reflects uh, an, an honor and a devotion to uh, documents, people, events, principles that define us. And there's a certain um, honor paid to them uh, to uh, protect them, pass them on to future generations, and that can be elevated to a kind of civic religion. We have certain—it's it, it's a certain set of, set of principles and documents and events that we're, that we're dedicated to. That's, that's a much tamer thing. And I think there was certainly, there was that kind of civil religion way back. There was, there was the Anglo-American version of that as, as the Americans talked about how proud they were to be part of the British Empire uh, in the 1750s and 60s. And then there's an American version of that. Uh, I'm more concerned about the, uh, a, a more dangerous kind of civil religion, which actually is the transposition of and it's a romantic nationalism is what it really is it's the transposition of sacred identity uh, in this case of of a redemptive Christian identity kind of thing Eric Bogelin wrote about and it gets transposed into the into uh, into the nation state and the nation state becomes a sacred object uh, it becomes a messianic object and and that's that's the critical transition some of that's back there in the 17 in the 1890s with beverage you can't make up beverage uh, <laughs> you cannot make up what that man says uh, about about the US so that's that's one thing I'd say there's yes there's a civil religion almost end to end in American history but it's of one kind and that's a safer uh, more normal kind of civil religion but then there's this uh, Really potent uh, appropriation of actual religion into the into the nation state.
2: Well, I would I would simply agree. Um, the uh, if, if if civil religion if American civil religion was healthy in the 19th century, it was healthy because it was a little bit humble. In other words, we recognize that our nation has a special relationship with God. We're not, we're not sectarian about it. We all have our own private faiths, but we all sort of can agree that God has looked over this country and watched over it, and it's amazing that we're here. Just pr- miraculous, providential. Um, and, uh, and because of our uh, subordination, you might say, to God, we pay obeisance to God. Uh, and that means that the civil religion has at least the potential to pers- perform a prophetic role, not just a priestly role, fu- not, a, not just a priestly function, making us all feel good week to week, uh, but a uh, prophetic role where it can stand by and say, now wait a minute, you admit that you your nation is under God. Are you living up to God's laws? Are you really pleasing God or not? That's the prophetic function uh, that civil religion could, can play. Um, and that's, I think, what the presidents are all trying to invoke. Franklin Roosevelt was very good at this, you know, uh, money changers in the temple and all this kind of thing. Um, uh, but unfortunately, uh, the, this, the, this healthy form of civil religion can spill over, particularly as the nation becomes more and more powerful, can spill over into a kind of an arrogance where we sort of kick God off his throne and begins slyly to worship ourselves or our power or our our, our state uh, and um, and the the question uh I, angels abroad uh, a, uh angels at home uh, uh, federal government's a, a devil at home but an angel abroad uh that's a that is a uh, a debased politicized version of this of this debate um, uh, that uh, uh, is grotesquely oversimplified. And if you look at it from God's point of view, if you will, <laughs> subspace eternitatis, how we're supposed to treat our fellow man, all of these political issues just become, uh, we should be ashamed of ourselves.
5: Yes, sir. Uh, Bob Shadler, thank you very much for uh, a superb panel. Um, and just on the last comment, it's, it's kind of whether When we said under God, we really meant the right arm of God here on Earth. And so being under or an adjunct is uh, interesting. Mm -hmm. I wanted to to bring up another dimension of religion, certainly the Christian religion. Uh, One is uh, the idea of success and failure. Uh, You were mainly focusing on we're God's children because we're so successful. But religion also, because it it endures, it has to explain failure. And it's often sinners in the eyes of an angry God. So when things aren't easy for us, it's because God is dissatisfied with us, not because we, we have to get right with God to overcome the fact that we failed. So it explains failure as well as success as having a special relationship to God. Wanted to ask a question about another dimension of religion, which is religions both try to engage the world and withdraw from the world. We have monks, we have Mennonites, and so forth. And so to pose a challenge for kind of a, a Cato perspective, is what others call isolationism, or the thrust to not engage the world, which this panel has been critiquing, also part of an American civil religion, which is kind of the Mennonite monastic, we want to we keep our purity, to keep our special relationship to God, to keep us pure, we have to be less involved with the world? And is that another version of this messianic civil religion?
0: We at Cato, of course, are not adherents of that religion. We want to engage the world, just not try to run it militarily. But uh, to the question.
3: Well, Ben, of course, has the right answer on the definition of isolationism. Being politically, militarily less engaged with the world is not isolationism. America will be ever the more engaged with the world, industrially, commercially, economically, culturally, educationally, in every facet <laughs> thereof. So, the pundit's notion that withdrawing, say, from South Waziristan or where not, is isolationism, <laughs> or that reducing Pentagon spending by a few billion is isolationism doesn't make sense, because, of course, we are all the more ever engaged. I I, I just want to—I agree totally with
5: what you said. That's why I said others call it isolationism. It, it's, uh, I think, a canard. Oh, no, Bob,
3: but, I, I, but I know. Of course, you're, you're more subtle than that. But it was, I had in mind particularly Wall Street Journal editorials that speak <laughs> so cavalierly of isolationism, as if there was the slightest sense that America would somehow roll up and come home. I,
5: I just, uh, uh, I, since I so totally agree with what everything you said, I <laughs> want to get to the point of whether and monks and and the Amish also engage the world, so I'm not even (coughs) slapping them. I'm just asking whether that mode that we, too, endorse of engaging culturally and economically and and travel and so forth, but the idea that we want to keep a certain reserve, a certain distance, to keep our purity does that to even that have a religious messianic dimension that is participates in the civil religion? I mean, it's it's not all going out, but can it also be withdrawing as part of that?
2: I, I think it used to be that way. Um, it's almost impossible to find anymore. Um, Isolationism is a canard. It's a dirty word that was invented in the 1890s to attack the people who opposed the imperial policy. Captain Alfred Theramahan said, I am an imperialist because I am not an isolationist. A what? (laughs) This country was never isolationist. This country was born on a continent with the British to the north, the Spaniards to the south, and the Atlantic Ocean full of enemy ships. Um, Originally, we had the Spaniards to the west, um, uh, as well as the south. Um, This country, uh, the the foreign policy principles that Washington laid down for us that were so unbelievably wise and far-seeing were principles for how to deal with the fact that we cannot be isolationist and indeed don't want to be isolationists. we want trade with all the world we want good relations and commerce with the whole world all countries but he said in his wisdom to have as little political connection to do with them as possible and alliances only in emergency situations is the wise thing to do uh, in order to protect that kind of civil religious virtue republican virtue that we were trying to cherish and preserve but The propagandists, since the 1890s, have driven that out of our DNA, if you will.
0: Well, just to elaborate on the question, I I mean, before you answer, um, is the question maybe, to fight this religion that we don't like, don't we need our own religion, not just being critical of this? Don't we need a civil religion to fight a civil religion?
1: Wow. Right. And and this is a wonderfully perceptive question. A large part of the answer would take us into a lot of theology uh, and history of more than 500 years of church-state. But if you think about, let me think of the example I know best, think about the First World War and the religious debate in America over participation in the First World War. There are at least three parking spaces. You have one which can't tell the difference between the things of God and the things of Caesar. Right, you have really aggressive interventionist social gospel clergy uh, who uh, want to immunitize the eschaton like nobody's business. <laughs> right, so they're behind Wilson, and we're going we're gonna to bring, and through the agency of the League of Nations, uh, you know, we're, we're going to bring heaven on earth. That's one very serious confusion which leads to one kind of civil religion, and that's and with implications for both domestic and foreign policy. All the way over on the other end, there is a uh, Anabaptist or Neo-Anabaptist, and that's where some of the best critique is coming on a certain kind of civil religion. But I think your question gets at exactly what can be a problem over here. This so radically separates Uh, God and Caesar, uh, church and states, uh, religion and life, it so radically tears them apart that it sees the ordinary political and economic realm, uh, uh, market systems and all this stuff, it sees it as inherently corrupt, tainted, uh, this is part of this fallen world, it's the realm of the devil. So you end up with this, instead of it's all one, it's all either God or the devil. So you can't can't be in the military at all. You can't can't engage at all because the world is this very dirty, satanic place. And what gets lost in all of that is the, the, the sanity in between there, which allows the things of Caesar to be the things of Caesar, just ordinary world, which has its own problems and challenges and needs its own kinds of of policies and foreign policy and but you can tell the difference and you don't you don't confuse that with the things of God. you can tell the difference and you don't expect your uh, priest or minister or rabbi to be uh, politicizing in the pulpit, and you don't expect your president to be sermonizing <laughs> over here. what that's an option that that's a viable option.
0: Uh, in the back of the glasses, and we'll go to David. Uh, hi, thanks for taking my question. My name is Nicholas Warnick. I'm a May 2012 graduate of Vanderbilt Law School and a full-time job seeker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my question is this: When I was in law school, I did some scholarly work on Islamic law and universal human rights. And so, my question for the panel is: Do you think the the perceived or real threat of a cohesive Islamic political state will galvanize this American civic religion in much the same way that the threat of international communism did um in the mid part of the century wow. and if so what would what <laughs> what features do you think this american uh, civil religion will take on to kind of uh, oppose that who wants to uh...
3: but wouldn't that assu- wouldn't that assume that the notion of a caliphate is remotely realistic that's Yes, 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 but you know, somehow Senegal and Indonesia and Pakistan will all combine together. When I hear such arguments made, they nearly exclusively come from uncritical enthusiasts of U.S. support for Israel, people who don't see Israel, say, as a moral and a strategic liability of the United States. So. That notion might be more of a smokescreen than anything anyone can truly subscribe to. It can be a convenient debating point because, as you know from your studies, if you drill down the notion of a caliphate, let alone an aggressive one that wants to swallow up America, is somewhat far fetched.
0: Uh,
5: David. Hi, I'm David Bowes with Cato. I want to go back to the city on a hill metaphor. I was struck when you said all the Republican candidates, except Ron Paul, use this metaphor, because what sets Ron Paul apart? Well, it's his non-interventionist foreign policy. And I would think, and, and, and maybe you touched on this and I missed it, but I would think that the city on a hill metaphor ought to involve Self-improvement, perfecting ourselves as a beacon to the world, but not going out into the world actively to do anything. We are a city on a hill. What are we doing down in the the valley of despond? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you, David. Because now I get to talk about a paragraph I removed from my from my presentation. <laughs> <laughs> we did not set this up. Um, I I'm I'm sympathetic, but. <laughs> Only so far, uh, with with that approach, there there is a, a, there there are a number of people, I was just recently reading a blog by uh, a historian at Wheaton College. There are those very conscientiously trying to sustain an understanding of City on a Hill and Winthrop and the Puritans that would lead to more uh, modesty, humility, in some ways, the way Walter was speaking, uh, a self-awareness, an awareness of divine judgment impending over us, and that it would actually slow you down Uh, and connect with a more authentic Puritan understanding of America as a refuge and not as um, an early version of international communism, the way Perry Miller wrote about it. I, I, I'm sympathetic and I would be more comfortable uh, at one level if, if politicians use city on a hill in the, I'd be shocked uh, and, and, I'd, and I'd be more sympathetic with that. but I have, I have another problem with that. I have a problem with that as a historian. I have a problem with it as a Christian. As a historian, I, I think it falls into the category I laid out early that that we have the we have the pattern of trying to get right with Winthrop accompanied by the getting Winthrop right. I don't think the modest, humble, restrained uh, City on a Hill vision or even self-improvement vision actually gets Winthrop right. I, I think there is so much God's new Israel identity packed in, especially the last paragraph of the Model of Christian Charity, I, I think you're playing with fire to talk about yourself in those terms, to, 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 to cultivate an imagination that pictures yourself the way Winthrop pictured uh, that colony, I think, is playing with fire. So I'm not comfortable with it. There, I don't think it's historically accurate to make it all kinder gentler. Uh, and as a Christian, I'm still bothered by what what the church loses by so complacently surrendering part of its identity. Uh, you know, we. We've lost other parts of the identity to politics, and that's just one more piece. Uh, and well, I'll leave it there.
0: Well, we have time for one more uh, question, or uh, two, if the answers are fast. Uh, we'll go to this gentleman over here.
1: Hi, my name is James Hoppenfeld. Oops. And uh, I have this book that was written a few years ago uh, Professor of History wrote the following. To the generation that founded the United States, designed its government, and laid down its policies, the exceptional calling of the American people was not to do anything special in foreign
3: affairs, but to be a light to lighten the world. (laughs) (laughs) My question is, if it's possible to return to such a notion, can can we do it? Can you put the genie back in the bottle? And if so, should we?
1: Does a certain
2: historian Yeah, there's a certain historian. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to prove I'm a real historian by admitting that I was mistaken when I wrote all that stuff. I was mistaken to use the word exceptional. It was only since then that I've discovered where the word exceptional came from, uh, or exceptionalism. Uh, I just took the term for granted. I was a child of Perry Miller, uh, uh, in part. Uh, but I. But my twist on Perry Miller was, well, uh, we d- we were born. We uh, Americans were born with this mission that the Puritans best represent uh, to be exceptional. We were born with that. That's what I was arguing. I was wrong. Uh, I may have been wrong, at least on on what Winthrop meant by it. Um, my twist was that it was to it was what we were to be. We were to be an example. And this is this is stock stuff. Political scientists write about this all the time. There's the missionary tradition and there's the exemplary tradition. Uh, should we, are we called just to be an example to the rest of the world? We're going to change the world by example? Or are we going to go charge out and try to export our, our institutions and values? So I would stand with my, in fact, I'm writing a sequel to that. Uh, I would stand with the with the conclusion that yes, the understanding of the founding fathers uh, with, with a few uh, split-minded exceptions like Jefferson at times, uh, or Henry Clay later on, uh, just for a, for part of his career, uh, the, the, the understanding of the founding fathers was that we were to be exemplary. We were it was what we we need to we need to look to ourselves. We need to to uh, to become to, to live up live up to our ideals, to prove that human beings can govern themselves, and there and therefore perhaps be an inspiration to other peoples to throw off their monarchs and govern themselves. Uh, but but to charge off, as John Quincy Adams said, to go abroad in search of monsters to destroy would undermine uh, our own exemplary um, quality. Uh, so I, I'd stand by that.
1: I, I would just say something we all know, that what matters is the content, uh, what those words are meant to symbolize. When Barack Obama came really, really close to finally using City on a Hill in his last campaign stop, and he said that he's talking about the future that America's children dream of and deserve. He said, and then we will truly be the light upon the hill. <laughs> <laughs> so if that's what you mean by it, uh, then you know it, it's, it's the content and the policy that goes along with all that. But it'd be nice to think we could recover a more modest understanding.
0: All right, well, uh, I'm sorry for the people didn't get to ask questions, but uh, you can try to catch the speakers. And we have lunch uh, upstairs uh, in the uh, conference center on the second floor. Thanks for coming.